Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm Amy Bird, the housewife theologian, and I'm here with my co-host, Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College, and Todd Pruitt, pastor of the big mega university oh church, Covenant Is that part of the Hillsong denomination? Yeah, yeah. We're <laughs> part, we, we have joined with the brand new uh, Hillsong denomination, so we're very, we're very excited about that. Yeah, yeah, we're also excited because our guest today has come back. A return a guest. A return the, the guest. The triumph of hope over experience. Right, <laughs> right. Which, I mean, I think kind of goes with the theme of her book. Uh-huh. But um, I'm, I'm referring to the wonderful Nancy Guthrie. She is an author and a Bible teacher. She and her husband lead respite retreats for families who have lost loved ones. Um, we very much enjoyed having her on the last time, and we're very excited to talk about her new book, even better than Eden, nine ways the Bible's story changes everything about your story. Hi, Nancy. How you doing? Hey, I'm great. Glad to be with you guys today. Yeah, so your book, it addresses a popular misconception about where we're headed, which mm-hmm. I want, want you to talk about. But I also, with that, noticed that, um, very importantly, it addresses popular misconceptions about Eden as well. I think so. Yeah, I mean, because how often do we hear that the goal of the future is some kind of either restoration mm-hmm. or return to Eden? Right. And I think that ignores some of the realities about the original Eden that we discover in Genesis 1 and 2. It and does. Three. And and I think even if we start with just Eden and not, and not where we're headed yet, so often I think people kind of think of it as boring, purposeless, maybe, you know, it doesn't really get interesting until the villain enters the scene. And so I think, I think you do a good job of, uh, you know, digging into the anthropology there and, and what's really going on in the, in the beginning story as well. Well, what's amazing is the brilliance of Genesis, (laughs) really Mm. the whole Bible, Mm -hmm. but you know, especially Genesis one, two, and three, you know, I feel like I'm barely scratching the surface of Mm. what is there. And, you know, we have such um, chronological snobbery, like we're so <laughs> smart. But, you know, what Moses did in writing these sparse uh, couple of chapters, mm. there was so much there right. to seek to understand. But I, I think the primary misunderstanding is we think of Eden in terms of perfection, mm. right. when I think we should be thinking of it in terms of potential. Right. Yeah. And and so Nancy, go with that for a minute. What what is kind of at issue? What what's at stake in the misunderstanding of hey, we're headed for the restoration of Eden? What's kind of the primary problem with that kind of a statement? Well, if, well, if we look at the original Eden, there's a few things that once we speak them, that seems somewhat obvious. But the original Eden was vulnerable. Mm-hmm. It it wasn't secure. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's clear because the, the serpent, uh, evil itself, works its way into the garden. It wasn't secure for its inhabitants. And it's not just the serpent that makes that clear. God himself, in his own words, when he says, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely 
die, there's the possibility of judgment, the possibility of death. We know Eden was just getting started by the very fact of what Adam and Eve were uh, commanded to do. They were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So, in other words, uh, as they had offspring who were made in the image of God, who were joining them in this task of bringing order to, then the the boundaries of Eden would have expanded. Mm -hmm. And until, I like the way Habakkuk says it, when he says that um, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, Mm -hmm. uh, that that was the original intention. Um, But of course, the first Adam failed at Mm -hmm. this. And this is why this helps us understand the whole story of the Bible, because when we understand that, then we realize we need a second Adam. Mm-hmm. We need a second Adam who will, in fact, be obedient to God, will accomplish the work that God has given him, and that he's going to lead us into this era, this new garden that will, in fact, cover the whole of the world. Mm-hmm. I love it that you start the book, um, you know, you would think that the first chapter would be, because these nine different themes you have, you think that the first chapter would be garden, but you start it with the story of the wilderness. Well, it's, it's an amazing thing how, con- how consistent the Bible is with these biblical themes from Genesis to Revelation written by all of these different authors. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it not so clear yes. the yes. Bible has one divine author? Yes. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, this theme of wilderness, it does begin in a garden, but mm-hmm. we, what we have to recognize in Genesis chapter 3, when they're ejected from Eden, what are they ejected into? They're ejected mm-hmm. into the wilderness that is outside of Eden. Uh, but the wilderness continues to be a theme throughout the, the whole Bible. We think of the children of Israel, they come out of Egypt, they spend 40 years in the wilderness, and what is inherent regarding the wilderness is always a sense of discontentment. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, you know, remember all that grumbling, grumbling, mm-hmm. grumbling. They did. They're in the wilderness. But where are they headed? They're headed to the land that God has prepared to them. And, and he describes it in Edenic terms. It's, it's described as a land of milk and honey. And if they will obey him there, he, he, he tells them all the ways that he's going to bless them. But, of course, they don't obey And just like Adam and Eve were exiled, ejected from the Garden of Eden, so uh, the people of God are ejected, exiled from this land of promise. But what's amazing, when you get to the prophets, the way the prophets talk about that, for example, Jeremiah talks about the land of Israel, and he actually borrows words from Genesis 1-2. In Genesis 1-2, we're told about the original creation, that it was tohu wabohu. It was formless and empty. It was a barren wasteland. And Jeremiah borrows those words to describe what Israel was like mm-hmm. after she was sent into exile. Mm-hmm. She was, the land was tohu wabohu. It was empty. There needs to be a work of new creation. And that's what the, that's what the prophets promise. Mm-hmm. And, and then we open up the New Testament. And what are we told immediately about John the Baptist? That he is a voice crying in the wilderness to make a way for the king to come, for God to come into his world. And 
as we trace the story, we see, we see Jesus tempted in the wilderness, and we also see him tempted in a garden about a tree, and he is, he is yep, crucified, mm-hmm. buried, and then I think of the resurrection day as that first day of the new creation. And mm. it was actually uh, Sinclair Ferguson and Alistair Begg and then their, in their little book, Name of All Names, that mm. I, I saw for the first time. They talked about what we read about in John 20 when Mary goes to the tomb and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. And she's, it, it, the passage reads, supposing him to be the gardener Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know there he is he it's the it's the dawn of the new creation Mm -hmm. and it makes sense that that all begins right there where his resurrection life begins to spread out of that empty tomb and even now he is meeting us here in the wilderness of the world and all who are joined to christ um second corinthians 5 17 says the new creation has come Mm-hmm. And so it's beginning now. And, but then we look forward to the very end of the Bible, especially Revelation 22, and what it describes about the new heaven and the new earth. It's, it's in very garden terms. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's so reminiscent of Eden, but yet it's superior to Eden in, in many ways. For, for one thing, the tree of life is there, but the tree of life has expanded. It's on both sides of the river. And the tree of life, right. it's not just producing one kind of fruit, it's producing 12 kinds of fruit. And it's not just producing one batch of fruit a year, it's a new crop of fruit every month. And so, it's this language of uh, excelling what was the original Eden. And I think that's one thing we're meant to take from that. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting also that uh, in, in the tabernacle and, and later the temple, um, the furnishings uh, particularly uh, with, with the Holy of Holies, are are these verdant images hearkening back mm-hmm. uh, to to the garden for some of that very same reason, and also pointing them forward. I exactly. just think you know, yeah, as those priests entered in and they mm-hmm. saw that lampstand that looked like an mm-hmm. almond tree with blossoms. Mm-hmm. Surely they would think back to Eden, yes. and but hopefully also they they also looked forward to God's promise of an even better than Eden to come that the second Adam would bring us into. One of the things that a lot of our listeners know is that you and your husband, David, have a, have a ministry to those who are bereaved because of the loss of a child. And some of that flows out of your own experience. How has that experience, your own experience, and then the ministry that that you and David have uh, to families who have, who have lost a child, how has, how did that figure in to this book as well? Are there echoes of that the hopefulness that those who've experienced such loss need? How did that kind of find its way into your book? Well, I have a passion for biblical theology. Yeah. And I, that really came about, I think, began to develop out of my search for understanding. You know, everybody, when you have a loss, you've got this question, why? Mm-hmm. And you're, you, you are driven to try to understand things in, you know, things that were used to be theological discussions yes. are now like, I got to know this. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, in the wake of the loss of my children, it's like having been someone who's in church all my life and studied the Bible all my life, I, just, I had a lot to try to figure yeah. out. And, and what became clear to me, you know, when people ask the question why, or they're seeking to find the question why, for a lot of people, that is a philosophical search. Mm-hmm. 
for some people, it's a circumstantial search. They want to look at their circumstances and identify something that they say, okay, this is why God did this so that this would happen. Um, for me, it became a scriptural search. It's like, I want to understand from the scriptures. And I found the answer in Genesis 3, hmm. the answer to why I have had two children who were born with a rare metabolic disorder. It's, it's right there on the impact of the curse on all creation that we discover mm -hmm. in Genesis chapter 3. Um, you know, God gives a curse on the serpent. He gives the curse on the ground. Uh, the impact of this curse means for the woman that uh, she's going to have pain in childbearing. Mm -hmm. And this is not just the pain of labor and delivery. This is the pain of infertility mm -hmm. and miscarriage and birth defects and all of the pain that is wrapped up in parenting mm -hmm. from day one. Um, and so, as I looked at that, to me, there was my answer to the question, why? So, if people ask me, why do you think you've had two children who've been born to have only short lives? I would say to you, because the curse has impacted, in fact, ill infiltrated mm -hmm. the whole world. It's impacted everything so that my genes don't work right. And, but here's the other thing about Genesis chapter 3 that I saw in the midst of that was also in Genesis chapter 3 is not only an understanding of why, but was the announcement of hope mm -hmm. right there at the very beginning. The, this announcement, even as God curses the serpent, he announces hope when he says that one day there's going to be a descendant of this woman and he is going to crush the head of evil forever. Mm -hmm. And so I, I guess one way that plays into this book would, would come out, for example, in, in my chapter on the story of the offspring, mm -hmm. you know, to, to understand that from right there in Genesis 3, the Bible, uh, you know, why are there all those genealogies? Because we're tracing the story of the offspring. We're looking, when will that one particular descendant of Eve be born who's finally going to put an end to evil. And, you know, we work our way through the Old Testament and we see all of these battles between the offspring of the serpent uh, in the form of people like Pharaoh and Goliath and Haman. And they're, what are they always trying to do? They're trying to destroy the offspring of the woman. And then we get into the New Testament. And then I, I love how Paul puts it. I think he's thinking about Genesis 3.15, perhaps, when he writes in Galatians 4.4, 4, that in the fullness of time that Christ came, and he says specifically, born of a woman. I think he's saying, this is the one. This is the offspring. And, you know, this is why I have hope. <laughs> he has come. And I've put all my hope in him that he, in fact, crushed the head of evil, of Satan on the cross. Now, now Satan has a tail that's still whipping through this world, bringing us pain. And he's, his tail has whipped into my life in that way. But when I look at the Bible, I know that his day of doom is coming. And when I look at what the Bible describes, the way the Bible describes the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22, especially where it says in particular about this new garden city that we're going to enter into. It says nothing unclean will ever enter it. Thank God. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have to fear being in the garden where this is going to happen all over again. Mm -hmm. no, no, this garden 
is going to be completely secure and the serpent is going to be forever bound far away from God's people who will be gathered and protected in the new Jerusalem. Yeah, I think that's an interesting insight. One of the things I say to this, I'm teaching the Bible survey at, at Grove City College uh, this term and got kids in class, some of whom have never opened a Bible. Um, Grove has mm. open enrollment, so not all the kids come from Christian homes. And one of the things I've been trying to get them to do is to reorient the, the question of the problem of evil. I think when we think about the problem of evil, typically we try to solve it in terms of origins. Mm. Where did it mm. come from? When we ask mm-hmm. the question why, we're really asking what is the origin of evil? frustratingly, the Bible gives no answer to that. Mm-hmm. Something's gone wrong by the time we hear Genesis 3. The snake's in the garden. He shouldn't be there. Adam is clearly delinquent at, at some level in his duties already mm-hmm. by the time we hear Genesis chapter 3. Uh, what the Bible does do, though, and I think this is where your book's so great, Nancy, is uh, if you're looking for the solution to the problem of evil, you can't look back. You've got to look forward. Mm-hmm. You look forward from Eden to uh, Calvary and, of course, from Calvary to uh, the return of Christ and the, and the consummation. So I think it's a, it's a very helpful way of, of reorienting our instinctive desire to solve the problem of evil by seeing it as an issue of origins, not as an issue of, of end result or, or consummation. But I want to just, Ray, ask you about the, the chapter on clothing. Oh, that's where I was going to go. It's fascinating. I mean, one of the things I threw out to the the kids in class a couple of weeks ago was, you know, it's interesting that Adam and Eve, they they eat the fruit, they they realize they're naked and they're ashamed, and they clothe themselves uh, in, I I think it's in... So the Geneva Bible said they sew together fig leaves to make themselves breeches. It's a great, great <laughs> way of putting it. But, yeah, I point out to the students, if, if the problem is visibility, if the problem is nudity, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, mm-hmm. leaves would seem to solve the problem. You know, presumably these are not transparent leaves. The leaves <laughs> cover up those mm-hmm. sensitive areas and, and modesty is preserved, maintained, reinstated, whatever. And yet the Lord comes and says, now nah, this isn't, mm-hmm. the, these, you know, the fig leaves, they're not good enough. And he clothes them in skins. Uh, any thoughts on that, Nancy? That seems to me, in, you know, it's a passage that you can read and suggest, but that's really interesting that the Lord doesn't find fig leaves to be adequate, even though they solve the problem mm. of, of nudity, you'd have thought. Well, it, it's fascinating to me to recognize when, when God comes searching out for his erring children and, and they're hiding what they state as to the reason, you know, we, we were naked and so we're hiding. Doesn't say because we're sin. But hmm. I think for us to understand this at all, we have to understand that, you know, when we read that they were naked and unashamed, we tend to look at that as idyllic. Hmm. Um, yeah. But I think what's important to understand this theme of clothing throughout the Bible is that Adam and Eve were intended to be they were royal representatives. They were vice king and queen to the great king there in the kingdom of Eden. And if we look at the Bible, we recognize that royalty are always dressed. They're dressed in royal robes. Hmm. So when we read that they're naked and unashamed, I don't think we're supposed to see that as an idyllic state. I think the original audience when Moses wrote this in this ancient culture, they would have seen, they, they would have kind of wondered, well, 
when are they going to get their royal clothing hmm. if they're, if they're royal people and if and they would have received that robe of righteousness had they obeyed but of course they didn't obey and this original Im- glorious image of god that they were made in became marred because of their sin and you know uh sinners have to have the appropriate dress to be in the presence of God. And God cannot dwell uh, with, with sinners. And so that's why he clothes them, but it's also why they are ejected from the garden. They need a robe of righteousness, but it's right. nothing that they're going to be able to accomplish on their own. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's going to take perfect righteousness. And in fact, you know, I, it doesn't tell us what these skins were. We know that Abel was a keeper of sheep. So, you know, perhaps these are skins of a lamb. It would make sense in context of the Bible's whole story that they would be. And it's just a picture of how God is going to work out through Christ covering us, giving us, in a sense, royal robes. And that is through the death of another lamb that perfect lamb of God, and we are going to receive his robe of righteousness so that one day we will be able to live in the presence of God, not covered by sewn up fig leaves Mm. of our own attempts at righteousness, Mm -hmm. but rather in the righteousness of Christ. Yeah, that's such a good point because I think so often, so often Christians think the goal is to go back to Eden, to, to be naked and unashamed again. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I even remember in college, like when I first started going to the Christian bookstore uh, to read Christian books, and there was this big book, it was written by T.D. Jakes, <laughs> I didn't know who that was, and it was titled Naked and Unashamed, you know, like that's your goal. <laughs> And so uh, it's very difficult for an English guy. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not good around naked people. I have to say, <laughs> we're not going to go there. But you know, I just think that that's such an important point that we we look forward to to wear the robes of Christ's righteousness. And when we get to the New Testament, like all of these themes, we see that we're getting tastes and glimpses we're experiencing in part now Mm -hmm. what we're going to experience in fullness forever Mm -hmm. and this is why in the epistles we're told over and over again to clothe ourselves to put on the lord jesus christ Mm -hmm. because you know when the new creation comes to us he is we're beginning now to wear the clothing of the character of jesus christ or at least we should be as he's working in us and sanctifying us. But of course, that's nothing like what's going to happen that final day on mm-hmm. resurrection day. And this is what Paul talks about in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And again, in 2 Corinthians 5, when he says, we long to be further clothed. So right. we're being clothed now in the character of, of Christ, but we long to be further clothed. And he describes that further clothing as the clothing of immortality. I mean, Mm. this is the clothing that we long for. And this is just another way where the future Garden City is going to be better than Eden because Adam and Eve clearly were not immortal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But you and I, the the second Adam, because of his obedience, you and I are going to be clothed with immortality to spend an eternity 
in his presence, accepted not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. I'm going to use that verse um, when my husband complains about my shopping. You know, I'm just going to be like, <laughs> I long to be further clothed and until the return <laughs> of Christ. <laughs> I think I think that, that is a, an appropriate application. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah, I think that's good, okay. um, Amy. Okay, yeah. I think I need to come there and. Get <laughs> <laughs> um, Nancy, in in writing this book, were there just in terms of your own preparation and your own study, mm-hmm. were there certain books that you found oh, to yes. be particularly helpful that you would encourage people that, gosh, if if they like this book even better than Eden, and uh, want to branch out a bit, you would recommend, you know. A particular yeah. couple of books. And I wouldn't say branch out, but go deeper because there you go. You know, I fully recognize I'm presenting some ideas that some people, because simply because they haven't heard it before, mm-hmm. you notice I have very extensive footnotes. Mm-hmm. Especially yeah, good. Well, actually, really they're end notes. I wish they were footnotes. I, 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 I do too. I couldn't find any <laughs> quotations from Bono, um, which made me wonder <laughs> how, how are you going to speak to the middle aged guy who wants to think he's still young and trendy? Well, see, that, that to me is, is that was my only complaint about the book, is there are no Bono no quotes. No Bono quotations. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to answer the question? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, Nancy, please. You know, I mean, I got a little stack of books that, like, I was just like mind officially blown by mm-hmm. some of these, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so, and it was, of course, helpful to me when I began finding some of these things from numerous sources because mm-hmm. that helps when you're in some new territory, right? right. Uh, but, you know, uh, G.K. Beale's yeah. A Biblical Theology of the New Testament, uh-huh. I mean, it is, it, it, it's marked up through and yeah. through. Have and you read it, the whole thing? No, but <laughs> a lot of, it is a big book. It's a it's big book. Three years. It's a big it. book. Yeah. I had never read Meredith Klein. Okay. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Kingdom Gosh. Prologue. Good, good, oh, good luck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's hard stuff. Um, you know, it was course helped by Voss's biblical theology. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, when I see some of those ideas in here, I think maybe I'm not crazy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I, I don't really, know. If you find the idea in Klein, you might still be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you might still be crazy. Uh, uh, J.V. Fesco, in the middle of the book, I, I got his book, uh, Last Things First. Yes. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's all about Genesis 1 through yep. 3. And that was really helpful. Mm. I I was helped by listening through Ligon Duncan's, uh, actually some lectures from a, a class on the covenant of works. Yes. Because I, I had not you. understood mm-hmm. a lot about that. That helped mm. me. I listened through Lane Tipton's lectures, especially on the first Corinthians 15 mm. and second Corinthians five about what's being said there about comparing the first Adam and the natural man to the second Adam and the spiritual man. And, so, those were some of the sources that helped me the most. Mm, good. Um, I want to maybe, if we have a little bit more time, to ask about one more chapter, and that is the one that you do on, on Sunday. I loved that chapter, and so I just wanted to throw it out there, like, how does Sunday bear witness to Christ's purpose for us? Because I think that this is one issue that I just see in broader evangelicalism that a lot of Christians do not mm-hmm. get. Well... Honestly, in some ways, Amy, that was the hardest chapter for two reasons for me, because um, in terms of application for today, mm-hmm. um, there are both strong theological, uh, both people and arguments mm-hmm. that I didn't line up with. Um, mm-hmm. But honestly, more of it was just conviction. Uh, you know, I, when I mm-hmm. write a book and I'm calling people to something, I don't want to call them to something. I'm not living yeah, myself. Yeah. And so, what I basically say is that um, in the original Eden, we notice that 
it's different. That seventh day is, is different than all the other days in the account because mm-hmm. there's no end to it. All the other days we say there was morning, there was evening, the third day. Morning, yeah, I like that you, you brought know. up that part. And But then for the seventh, you know, we don't get that. So mm-hmm. there's that sense of anticipation of, of waiting. And you get this sense in Genesis that God has given this work to Adam and Eve to do. And they're going to rest on the seventh day in anticipation of the work being completed and being invited into this ultimate eternal rest with God. Mm-hmm. And of course, they don't finish the work. They fail in the work. Mm-hmm. And so, what happens? Then we, we get him speaking the, the law to these people who are going to enter into this new land. And his command to them is that one day in seven, they take to rest and that they are to spend that day of rest both looking back at creation and looking back at the redemption. And it's as if they're still supposed to be spending that day focusing on what happened in the past as well as anticipating what's yet to happen in the future when they'll be invited into this eternal, ultimate rest with God. And when we get to the New Testament, what does Jesus say? He is Lord of the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. It is all centered on him. And he, as the second Adam, does complete the rest. But then we get to Hebrews and we say, you know, this promise of rest still stands. Mm -hmm. Still, we have not entered this ultimate eternal rest. And so, my argument, which really I was helped by Richard Gaffin, of course, my argument is that because we haven't yet entered that rest, it still makes sense for us as God's people to give a day every week to reorient our mm-hmm. lives and our perspectives mm-hmm. and our, our hearts, <laughs> our ambitions, our uh, affections, to reorient them towards what's being held out to us here in the gospel and in God's word, which is this anticipation of still entering this eternal right. ultimate but now rest. we get to and rest first yeah which is wonderful like we get to receive we get a before we're called out it. to work yeah meant, yep meant to be getting a taste of what is yet to come and how sad is it that so often we feel like what the bible is is is, is offering us to offering us here as a gift Mm-hmm. And we we turn it into legalism, mm-hmm. or we turn it into that it's binding us up. Mm-hmm. It's keeping us from doing something we really want to do that we think is going to be far more fun or more interesting. And I, I think when I do that, what I am demonstrating is unbelief mm-hmm. that as I accept this gift of Sabbath day rest in which I can focus on him i can turn i can feed on his word i can talk to him in prayer and just nurture my longing for that greater fellowship i'm going to have with him but when i reject that i'm saying i don't really believe that that's better Mm. when of course it is well it's been uh great having you on the program nancy um thank you it's easy when you work with amy bird so much to forget that there are Sophisticated ladies out there with uh, great taste and, uh, and ability. I try to keep them away from the, the classy. Yeah. Wow. No, women. I couldn't resist that. Was that. Not nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, it's been great having you on, Nancy, and uh, we want to recommend your new book, uh, Even Better Than Eden, to our listeners, and also uh, suggest that they visit your website at nancyguthrie.com, where you can not only find out about Nancy's uh, other books, but also about 
the, the ministries that she's involved in and have access there to uh, her speaking schedule and to uh, articles and interviews uh, that she's done. Or how do you say you say Schedule. You say schedule here. Yeah, yes. you, you can even have access to Nancy's schedule uh, <laughs> if you're an American. So it's been great to have you on, Nancy. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Um, well, you know, if I don't see you before then, I'm going to see you in a land, a home, a garden, a city that's going to be even better than Eden. Mm, excellent. It's great. Great to hear. For those of you who are regular uh, Mortification of Spin listeners, you'll already know this, but please visit our own website, mortificationofspin.org. Uh, there you'll have a chance to enter to win a copy of Nancy's uh, new book, Even Better Than Eden. And also please remember that we are a listener-supported podcast, and uh, if you feel able to make a, a contribution to help us keep Mortification of Spin on air, please do so. Uh, until next time, look forward to being with you again. In a God of a freedom, honey, don't you know that I love you? In a God of a freedom, baby, don't you know that I always be true? Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... I do think that public teaching is subject to public scrutiny. Maybe something I've written is erroneous. I'm open to that. But to declare a man apostate, to make a statement about his apparent eternal destiny, if you like, that's the task of the church. That's not for any individual to take that on themselves. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. I thought of a good idea. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> That's my Scooby Dooby Doo. So Zadie found someone on YouTube who go to um, drive-throughs and do impersonations, and this guy uh-huh. did ev- the, he did Scooby and Shaggy. Oh, I love Shaggy. And made yeah. his whole order with both of them. Nice. It's how she was dying laughing nice. watching it and then he does other characters and it's funny because like some people in the drive-thru they're just treating him like normal <laughs> <laughs> the whole time music for that one something about peanut butter is there anything about Stop. peanut butter <laughs> isn't there a peanut butter jelly time peanut butter jelly time peanut butter jelly <laughs> what is that time. you never heard that no, no and jelly and jelly, jelly. <laughs> <laughs> Sykes!